Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 168, Expedition 1. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. 20 years ago, on November 2nd, 2000, a crew of three spacefarers arrived at the International Space Station with the mission to bring the new orbital complex to life. We call these missions Expeditions, and the crew was Expedition 1. The trio was NASA's William Shepard, commander of Expedition 1, and Russian cosmonauts Sergei Krikalev and Yuri Gudzenko, both seasoned veterans of long-duration missions aboard the Russian space station Mir that was in orbit. These three spent 136 days aboard the space station and set the course for what would be an unbroken streak of human presence in space. We like to tout often that if you're, I guess at this point, younger than 20, you've never lived in a world where there haven't been humans in space at any given point in your life. To get to that point where humans started inhabiting the space station was not an easy thing. So to tell the full story of Expedition 1, we have William Shepard, goes by Shep. He was a manager of the space station program, a seasoned veteran in space, and the commander of Expedition 1 to the station. We talk about what it took to get to Expedition 1, the mission itself, and how the space station has grown into what it is today. So here we go. Expedition 1 with Bill Shepard. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Shep, thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Appreciate your time. Yeah, happy to be with you, all my all my friends at NASA there. And uh, I wanted to start with this. We're taking a snapshot here. Look where we are. 20 years past when you first arrived on the International Space Station and set the course for continuous human presence. What are your initial thoughts right off the bat of achieving this milestone? Well, I'm kind of amazed that uh, between NASA and all the international partners that we, frankly, that we've got it done. Uh, many, many people at the outset of uh, the International Space Station program uh, decided it was mission impossible and it was never going to happen, but uh, the team has proved them wrong. Well, that's perfect. Well, let's take a deep dive then. Um, I feel like you're the perfect person to talk to about this, just just diving into exactly that. What were those obstacles that made it seem like mission impossible? So let's start with the landscape of, of NASA and the international partnerships in the early 90s when we were uh, just kind of getting the International Space Station program and, and the thought of what would be the International Space Station up and running. Well, the idea for a space station is not at all new. Uh, certainly, even before World War II, people were talking about humans traveling in space and what we would do there. Um, and I think Von Braun had many sketches. Uh, there are Walt Disney shows on rockets going to space stations. But really, it got off the ground, if you will, uh, both in uh, the U.S. and in the Soviet Union with uh, manned laboratories. We had Skylab. And then uh, the Russians had a number of Salyut space stations, and then eventually one that they called Mir. Uh, President Reagan started Space Station Freedom, 
and this was in the early or in the middle of the 80s. And by 1992, uh, the administrations had changed, and uh, the problem was that NASA had spent almost 11 billion dollars on space station freedom, and it had taken uh, eight years, and not one pound of flight hardware. Uh, was to show for it. And so Congress was really upset with the space agency and was getting ready to cancel the program. And so really ISS, the International Space Station Program, uh, was a big change that, that pulled the iron out of the fire and uh, reorganized things. And that's kind of the path that we started on 20 years ago, and that's where we are today. Well, let's talk about some of those original plans. You mentioned Space Station Freedom. There were a number of other space stations uh, that were actually flying at that time, Mir included. Um, let's take a dive into the shuttle program and the and the original plans for shuttle um, as a as a vehicle to construct things like space stations. Well, NASA Space Shuttle uh, it was actually something that NASA was promoting even before the end of. Uh, the Apollo missions. Um, I think John Young was on the moon talking about what a great thing a space shuttle would be and encouraging uh, the politicians to support it. Uh, but one of the purposes of the shuttle uh, was to be able to build large things in Earth or orbit. So besides uh, carrying astronauts to space and doing experiments and EVAs and robotics and whatnot, one of the main reasons why we needed a space shuttle was so we could build big stuff in orbit. And uh, it was kind of in competition with the Russians. We didn't know what the Russians were going to do. They eventually built their own uh, space shuttle and flew at one time. But uh, that was the landscape. And uh, I think, uh, you know, to me, uh, there was a lot of uh, celebration and ceremony around the retiring of the shuttles and the ones that got transported to the museums. But for me, that was a really sad uh, <laughs> series of days because this was the end of uh, at least United States astronauts launching, flying into space and coming back in a vehicle that had wings on it that could land like an airplane. I, I still think that's a tremendous capability, and we've pretty much given that up. Yeah, and, and, and think about what it accomplished. You know, even, even before the International Space Station launched its first element, um, we did have cooperation uh, with this uh, space station that you're talking about, Mir, the Russian space station, where we had uh, an opportunity to work together with um, Russia doing a sh the shuttle Mir program. And not only, you know, using the shuttle, but also understanding the operations, I guess, behind long-duration spaceflight on Mir. Absolutely. If you look back, even President Kennedy, in the earliest days of our human spaceflight effort, talked about the political and diplomatic benefit of working with the Soviets on space. And uh, Apollo Soyuz... Uh, in 1975 was a result of that, and uh, it took us a while after that, another two decades, to really get uh, close to the Russian Federation and work together on space station. But 
I think it's a very healthy thing for NASA and for the country to be doing. Well, talk about those years. I think around this time, you were the International Space Station Program Manager. You had a lot of oversight into, you know, this cooperation, U.S. and Russia, to go from this idea of freedom, uh, International Space Station or Space Station Freedom, to this cooperative International Space Station. Can you talk about some of those years? Well, uh, my original uh, assignment uh, from the NASA administrator was to be on a basically a study team that would look at what is the what what's the executability, if you will, of the Freedom Program, and if if it needed to look like something else, uh, what would that be? And I had uh, I was a member of about a ten-man team, and we studied that for about a month and made recommendations. This was all. Uh, being driven by um, directives from the Clinton administration to figure out what what was NASA's future with the Freedom Program and, and what were they going to do um, after the after the study was over, then uh, I was the program manager, basically handling uh, several changes to what NASA was doing. One was. Uh, we were bringing the Russian Federation into the International Space Station Partnership, which was a big deal. Um, the partnership had been formed uh, about six years earlier by international agreements with uh, the Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, um, and the, there were other involvements with, there was some involvement with the Italian uh, aerospace industry, but that group, uh, was already up and running and was uh, initially very opposed to bringing yet another partner in because, uh, in part, this would diminish everybody's uh, availability for astronauts and research time on space and electrical power and, you know, all those things that you've got to do to have a, a collaborative uh, expedition or environment up in orbit. So there was a lot of negativity uh, among the established partners to bring the Russians in. Uh, the Russians themselves were uh, very difficult to deal with, um, and not because they are or were bad people, but you have to look at space from a Russian standpoint they launched the first satellite into space. They had the first man to fly in space. They had the first woman to fly in space. They did the first spacewalk. They were the first to look at the backside of the moon. And there were quite a number of technological firsts that the Russians claim. And they, to their, from their point of view, they looked at the United States, us Americans, as coming in behind uh, their successes and trying to take some of the credit for it. And I, I think there's some merit to that. I mean, we certainly approach doing space from from different directions, technically, but uh, Russians are very proud. They've got a very strong legacy in the early days of humans in space. And uh, I think initially we did not, the the Americans in particular, uh, we did not uh, respect that or appreciate that maybe as as strongly as we might have. And that was, a, you know, getting that, getting behind that, past that was a big deal. 
In addition, there are several other things that were happening. One was the budget for the space station, whatever it was going to be called at that time, was quite constrained. Um, the design of Freedom had to be changed for a number of reasons. It was too expensive. The assembly of the components had a lot of risk in it that we wanted to take out. We had Russian components that we had to integrate. Uh, we had this partnership that we had to manage, and we had a complete uh, restructuring of the space station program on the U.S. side altogether. NASA had written four prime contracts to various companies in the United States to carry out freedom. And this was in the process of being condensed to a single prime contract. Uh, some of the contractors were not going to maintain the work content that they had originally won in the previous contract. They were unhappy about that. And in addition, um, the space station program was going to be headquartered at one particular place in the country, and there was a lot of arm wrestling about where and which center or entity was going to be in charge of that. And it ended up being Houston. I was very happy about that because I was living in Houston. But um, these were some of the dynamics that were going on at the time. Very respected uh, Japanese partner who was in a lot of these discussions of the initial space station partnership came up to me one day and he, she, he said, uh, Shep, uh, this was 1990, early 1993, he said, Shep, uh, you guys are doing your sixth redesign of the space station. You're changing the contract around. You're chopping pieces of the hardware off. You're running short on money. Um, and you're changing the contract all around, and you're moving the headquarters to Houston. I don't think you're going to make it. <sighs> and that was the, you know, he was a pretty seasoned guy, and that was his expert opinion in the middle of 1993. And so... Uh, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't want to be uh, disrespectful, but I thought to myself, I thought, you know, we've got a real legacy of, of how to do hard things at NASA. We've got a great team working on this, and uh, just stand by. We're gonna we're gonna show you that this can get done. Shep, there seems to be just insurmountable odds against actually making this thing work. So. How how did you navigate through all of these obstacles? What How did you integrate with the international par partners with Russia to actually make the International Space Station become a thing? Well, I, I, I don't think it's a simple answer, and I think a lot of people uh, own parts of that story. Uh, I, I do think that um, one of the things that was uh, really important was I stepped down from being a program manager because I – the program manager has a, a lot of responsibilities to do um, a lot of the congressional liaison, uh, keep the funding for the program uh, headed in the right direction, uh, hand-holding for a lot of higher-level uh, forums. And I wanted to do the uh, more focused on the technical work, so I was I w took on the role as a deputy program manager to do that. But uh, that said... We started having pretty uh, aggressive exchanges, groups of people in Moscow talking to our Russian counterparts and having Russians in Houston 
And I think that was really the thing that made uh, the International Space Station program go. Uh, the Russians uh, came and, and certainly did things differently than what we did, but, but in the end, uh, the design and how it was implemented added a lot of capability to the station. And I'm probably jumping ahead. We can talk about this later in the podcast. Mm -hmm. But uh, nobody at the time realized that how important having uh, multiple countries and multiple launch assets that could uh, support the station in orbit. And after we've had particularly the, uh, the Columbia disaster, we would not have a space station if the Russians were not able to fly crews and material up to the ISS. And I, I, I don't think we specifically foresaw that in 1993, but the fact that many countries, the Europeans, the Japanese, and the Russians in particular, could have an opportunity to launch to the station on their own, that was a big part of our design. Hmm. So, um, well, the station has, even as a program, it had a lot of moving parts. It's hard to uh, cover it all you know, in a short discussion. Well, we can uh, we can zoom in on on hardware because I think one of the things you mentioned with some of the early years is is we were doing a lot of studies on on designing what would be a space station, but never had any hardware to show for it. So uh, during the space station, there were that there was that development process of the initial hardware of the International Space Station. I know uh, there's there's components like uh, Mir two and Soyuz, and I know Zarya was a joint effort. Um, how about some of those those early space station hardware uh, designs and processes? Well, I think you have to back up one step and think about is there a culture or a philosophy that says uh, not only what you design, but why you design it the way you do? And that was really the most interesting thing to me. Hmm. Our previous freedom design was dependent on some early assembly flights where we didn't have a lot of um, cooling, uh, communications, electric power, uh, other capability, and gradually the station got built out and those utilities, if you will, became more robust. But several of the aspects of this support to keep the station alive uh, had, if you will, a lot of technical risk that they were gonna survive the period before we had redundancy. The Russians, on the other hand, designed uh, smaller modules that were, in, a, in essence, uh, all-up vehicles. And when they launched it, it had life support. It had environmental control. It had fire suppression. It had computers. It had radios. It had solar power. It had thermal control. It had docking mechanisms, all that stuff. So the analogy would be to having a house that you're building in the United States or the U.S. side of the partnership, we'd lay the foundation and we'd get the, the studs in and frame everything out, put the roof on, and months into the construction, you might have a place you could roll out a cot and sleep. And uh, the, the Russian approach was <laughs> clear the driveway and pull the Winnebago up and, you know, open the door. 
and those are two really different approaches to doing, uh, you know, human-capable facilities in orbit. And I think there's a lot of merit to the Russian approach, frankly. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it's, it's maybe a bit simpler. So um, I guess around this time, you, you talked about stepping down from ISS program manager. At what point did you start gearing up for training for what would be the first expedition? Uh, summer of 1996, uh, the first crew, it was determined by the program management talking to the space agencies in the various countries um, that at that time, this was summer of 96, the launch was supposed to be 1998 somewhere, and everybody was assuming that the training was going to be a year and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, and that was historical uh, reference from what it would take to train shuttle crews and what the Russians normally would do for their Soyuz training. So in mid-1996, it was decided that naming a crew to go to the station would basically start driving the, the training folks to get their training uh, mature and you know get started with crew training. So we got named... Um, I think when it was, I believe it was sometime in the fall of 1996, and we started our training essentially that winter, and it turned out that due to delays in hardware and launch schedules, the crew did not end up flying until almost the end of 2000, so our training flow was uh, about four years, plus a little bit, about twice what we had originally intended. Uh, it was very tedious. Uh, if you're training but you don't know when you're going to fly, it's somewhat akin to crawling over broken glass once in a while. But um, <laughs> but we all understood that this was uh, a developmental thing and nothing was going to be perfect. And uh, if I can say patience had to be somewhat of a virtue. I, uh, I did have the pleasure of having uh, Kathy Bolt on this podcast to talk about training and how it's evolved over time. And she did mention training the Expedition 1 crew. And one of the things she mentioned when you talked about it being tedious, one of the things she mentioned was uh, there was this idea to train you to the system level, to train you to know the whole International Space Station inside and out, how to switch all the buttons and, and how everything worked. And that training evolved over time to a more general um, approach since the space station for the most part could be controlled from the ground. Did you know, did you find that some of those, some of that tedious training was just knowing like every system on the space station inside and out? Well, I, I want to commend Kathy and all the people who worked on expedition one in particular, they did a great job training us. Um, but I think the reality of it was, we were not the easiest crew to, to train, and that was true for a couple of reasons. One was uh, particularly Sergei Krikalev, who was an energy engineer, and he was basically our flight engineer on board. Both he and I had been intimately involved in MIR-2 and all the nuts and bolts of the U.S. side of the ISS program, so we knew a lot about the hardware. Um, and so... The other thing was we knew when we flew that 
although the the ideal case was that the ground could do everything, the reality was that they were not going to be able to hmm. because particularly early in our flight, we only had uh, direct communications, line of sight from orbit to the ground, and we had to have a ground station relay uh, all the comp to Houston or Moscow. So this meant that our coverage was not going to be anything like what we have now on ISS or what we were used to on uh, space shuttle with the TDRS relay satellite. So we had periods, we were going to have periods on orbit, sometimes four to six hours long, where we weren't talking to anybody and nobody on the ground could see what was happening on ISS. So with that in mind, you got to step back and say, well, am I going to wait for the ground to tell me what to do when something something big is up, or am I going to figure out what I have to do in the interim and try and you know prevent it from getting worse or fix it or make it better? So we were pretty hard over that the right way for us to train as the first crew and probably the early crews up there was to know as much as we could about everything because... The chances were good that in a big crunch up there, we were going to be on our own. And that's, that's why we did it. Very, very critical thing to, to be able to do, for sure. I want to take a step back um, and, and, and zoom in on the fact that this is the first expedition, which means you were up and going to be up in space for much longer than some of your previous, previous shuttle missions. So Expedition 1 was 136 days. Let's take a step back to your shuttle missions and talk about what they were like and then how that compared to Expedition 1. Uh, you, I have three listed for you, STS 27, 41, and 52, your experiences on those. Well, they were all uh, different flights. Uh, 27 and 41 were, were pretty short uh, up-and-down flights. Uh, 27 was a high inclination Department of Defense mission. Uh, the idea was to launch, uh, swing the orbit around to a 57 degree inclination, 50, yeah, 57 degrees, and then as soon as we're ready, uh, put an object out into orbit and check it out and come back home. So it was a great mission, but almost, you know, by the time you were really accustomed to where to look to see the ground and what the food was going to be like. You were getting ready to land and come home. <laughs> sort of the same thing on SCS-41. Our, our big mission there was a planetary probe uh, built by the Europeans called Ulysses. Um, that was a uh, launch. Ulysses was a pretty interesting object. It uh, carried uh, inertial upper stages and went to uh, a trajectory that sent it over the back of Jupiter, and it did that to give it an adjustment to its orbital inclination where it would fly uh, down in the, if you will, the southern hemisphere of the, the solar system and fly over the south pole of the sun. Yeah. Uh, but again, short mission, uh, up and down in a couple of days. FCS-52 launched a a laser reflector satellite, but did about a week and a half of materials experiments. But that was pretty much it. So in contrast, my two Russian crewmates, uh, Sergei in particular, had spent a year in orbit on the Mir. Mm -hmm. He was the, the Soviet cosmonaut 
who launched and came down a year later without a country because in the meantime, the Soviet Union had gone away and the Russian Federation had been set up. So, and, and Yuri had experience on the mirror as well. So my position as a low-time flyer uh, was not something that the Russians were particularly happy with. <laughs> well, well, then uh, let, let's talk about Expedition One. Then let's let's uh, let's zoom in on the training there. I think what's one of the major differences is the vehicle that's going to take you to and from orbit. All of your previous flights were on the space shuttle. Now you were getting ready to learn everything about the Russian Soyuz. So the Russians uh, have had the Soyuz spacecraft since the mid '60s, and they had a legacy of training quite a number of foreign cosmonauts or astronauts from different countries as guests to ride on the Soyuz. So the mode of their training uh, was that the Americans that showed up to work on space station were trained as it were, they were started on a training flow that basically saw them as guest cosmonauts. Hmm. And we had a big problem with that because we said, look, um, we're gonna be up there, we're not gonna be in contact with the ground all the time, we're gonna have a limited number of crew, and we've got to know not only uh, what happens when this button doesn't work, but uh, maybe why something is impeding it or what's behind the panel or what's going on that this thing needs to know or do to make it work. And this is not really how Russians trained their cosmonauts. But we said, hey, uh, this is a new ball game and this is the way we want to do it. And after many, many battles with the training staff and the program managers, we we made that happen. And so uh, the other big thing about training in Russia and for the Soyuz in particular was all the Russian training was in Russian. <laughs> we had lesson plans that were translated to English, and we initially started down their road saying, okay, we can sit there and with an interpreter and looking at the, the translated uh, script for the training, we can get what we need to get. But soon became obvious that we would need to be really proficient in Russian. So everybody from the U.S. side that was training for ISS in Russia learned Russian. And it had some other benefit. And the big one was many of the people who were in the training flow as instructors had had some involvement in the Russian space program that went back 10, 20, 30 years. There were people there who had worked on Sputnik and who had trained Yuri Gagarin. And so these people were walking encyclopedias for how the Russians did things. And I thought, you know, I could talk to these people with interpreters, but um, I really want to know what they're thinking about and why they're doing something a certain way. I have to be able to talk to them in Russian. So that's what we did. And it was not an easy part of the training, uh, but it was necessary, and I think in hindsight, uh, I think everybody's really glad uh, that we were able to do that because it, it, it gave us the necessary insight into how this other space entity uh, works and thinks. And it's very interesting because all the astronauts I talked to today, right before their launches, 
and I'm talking in the past couple of years, they always talk about, you know, Russian training, we're still doing it. That a lot of them say it is one of the harder parts about training. A lot of them with technical backgrounds able to understand that a little bit easier than maybe the Russian language, but still a very valuable part of what it is to be an expedition astronaut even today. Well, um, one, of the, one of the things that came out of that before we leave the language issue was yeah. it made me think of how would I approach this if I was Japanese or if I was an Italian or, you know, there are many other countries that want to be involved with helping to crew the station. And I'm going, you know, for somebody who's, who doesn't have English or Russian as a first language, it's, it's doubly hard. And I'm going, there's got to be a way that we can bridge that with controls and displays and training material and diagrams that explain if you will, what the crew has to deal with in such a way that the need for complete textual understanding of what you're doing is, is reduced. And so we create a graphic environment that's used on the ground, used in training, used on the displays on the space station. Um, and today is, is really part of how the station is operated. And it was designed at the time to be somewhat universal. So people ask me um, once in a while, they say, hey, Shep, well, 100 years from now, what do, you th what do you think people will remember about the International Space Station? I say, well, if we're, if we're really lucky, they will, they will remember having heard the name, but not much else about it. <laughs> but I think one thing that will endure is this approach to having multinational crews who have to travel in space and do pretty complex things, this kind of human interface is something that I think we started that I think it's going to last for a long time. Very cool. I want to I jump over to uh, your expedition and, and talk about the journey there because now we're, we're here 20 years later from, from when you were getting ready uh, to launch. Um, talk about your experience, I guess, after training in Baikonur preparing for launch. Well, I would say it's not too different than what uh, the U.S. and American astronauts do between Houston and the Cape and the shuttle launches. Hmm. Uh, you go down to Baikonur about three weeks before your launch for a practice countdown, and then about five days before you fly, you show up again. You have final checks in the vehicle. The capsule gets made to the booster rocket. That goes out to the pad. And then uh, the launch countdown starts. And uh, morning of October 31st, we get up early, early in the morning, get a bite to eat, uh, jump in the bus, go down to the assembly area where we get in our spacesuits and get those checked out take the bus out to the pad and get on the rocket. So that that whole process um, was, I wouldn't say it's familiar, but the, the sequence and the steps involved were, were very understandable to the Americans there. Um, I'd say the only difference really was the Russians had set the, the launch date and the liftoff time about four months in advance three or four months in advance. And that did not change. So we got out, uh, Baikonur's out, kind of on the high desert, very flat terrain, almost no vegetation. Um, this was 
the middle of the fall. You get up early in the morning, and it's kind of kind of misty and foggy, and then the fog kind of glyphs a little bit. But at 10:30 in the morning, there was still about a 200-foot ceiling, which means you go 200 feet up, and you're up in the clouds, and nobody can see what's going on. <laughs> the Russians pushed the button, lit the fuse. We launched, boom, up into the clouds. Away we went. The shuttle never would have flown in those conditions, and so, you know, that I I think that says a lot about um, the differences in how the two space cultures operate. Now, how about that ride in the Soyuz? That was your first launch on a Soyuz vehicle. How did that compare to shuttle? Yeah, nothing really bad to say about it. I think there's a lot of goodness in the vehicle and the capsule itself. Their abort regimes. Uh, where you can stop doing what you're doing and get to a safe place, they're they're really pretty good. Uh, the rocket itself, I think when we flew, the Soyuz, which is also called the booster rocket, the Soyuz launcher had been to the pad that we flew on, and they had 461 successful launches uh, without a failure, or at least a failure that would have threatened the crew. And, you know, those are pretty good numbers. And so uh, despite the fact that the inside of the vehicle is extremely cramped, the couches are quite uncomfortable, the suits are a pain in the butt, essentially, absolutely. But you got to ask yourself, uh, do, you want, do you want comfort or do you want robustness and reliability? And I think for most people that's an easy choice. That's right. Now, it was a, a longer journey, I guess, compared to what we're seeing nowadays with uh... – six-hour rendezvous. You were you were uh, orbiting the Earth for two days before uh, actually rendezvousing with the International Space Station and finally getting ready to enter. Can you describe that journey? Yeah, that was uh, historically how the Russians planned their uh, launch dynamics, if you will. Uh, we were launching in the plane of the station, but uh, well behind it and below it in every rev that we go around because we're, we're circling the Earth somewhat faster. We're ca gradually catching up, and when we get within striking distance the last day, we do a little, little burn and zip up to the station and dock. I think that was a consequence of the, the ability of the Russians to have really good knowledge of where the Soyuz vehicle was and where the target vehicle was and what the potential errors could be. And so uh, driving around in orbit to do docking burns up a fair amount of fuel. You only have so much. So I think they were initially very conservative about how they planned their flights. Uh, up until about maybe six, eight years ago, uh, that was the way they did it. But then they started doing uh, rapid rendezvous within four to six hours of catching up. It's just a little different flight. Uh, it, it takes more precision, but somehow the Russians were able to change that. Hmm. Now, when you actually docked to the International Space Station, this was going to be the first, uh, I guess, long-term crew. You had you had STS-88 uh, before that visit the International Space Station. But what were some of those things you had to do to get the space station ready for continuous human habitation? Well, the docking was automatic. It was controlled by uh, Mission Control Moscow. Um, I'm sure that 
people have seen the videotapes of the downlink and all that. Mm -hmm. We drive into a docking cone, and, uh, and once we get the hooks of the probe into the right spot in the cone, a couple of switches get flipped, and the two uh, rings of the spacecraft get mated together and sealed. Um, so uh, we open the hatch, we check the pressure, everything's good, open the hatch. Uh, one of my first jobs was to sample the composition of the atmosphere, make sure nothing toxic was in there. Uh, Yuri and Sergey were running around with checklists. There was stuff that they had to do, but I guess the biggest panic, if you will, that we had on our uh, first day docked was we had a live press event that was scheduled for about three or four, at the end of our day, but three or four hours after we had docked, and it required getting a television camera out, getting some lights, wiring everything up, turning everything on, assembling in the service module, and looking at the camera, and then doing a live downlink to Moscow. And we could not find the, the cord that we needed to hook the camera up to the port where it was going to be uh, you know, on the radio system. Just frantic for you know, about an hour looking for the dang thing, and we finally got it. Very cool. Done, but that, that, was, that was pressure. Well, um, you, you know, you talked about going through the hatch and, and getting everything prepared, but what was going through my mind is, is actually entering through the hatch. Now, I know... Um, here, today, we see crews being welcomed by crew members that are already on board station since we do have that continuous presence, but you being the first ones on board to start this continuous presence, did you do anything special, any sort of ceremony, any, any words, uh, even just between each other, to really recognize that moment of entering the station for the first time? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> we... We did ask, uh, we, we were on the phone with uh, Mr. Koptev, who was the head of the Russian Space Agency, and Mr. Golden, who was a NASA administrator. They were both in mission control in Moscow. And each, uh, each Russian crew that flew on the space station had, uh, had their own call sign. And it was generally one that stayed with various astronauts, cosmonauts rather, during their career. So uh, one astronaut would, and they're usually astronomical names, you know, like Mars or Mercury or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Yuri Gudzenko, who was the commander, if you will, for the, the Soyuz capsule, his Russian call sign was Uran. And one of the choices was going to be that during the mission, our expedition was going to be referred to as Uran. And Yuri would be Uran 1, and Sergey would be Uran 2, and I was probably going to be Uran 3. And I did not like that for a couple reasons, so we kind of jumped the gun and asked if we could use the radio call sign Alpha, Space Station Alpha. And the, the ground was kind of apoplectic, but they said, okay, for the, as a radio call sign, we'll call you that. And uh, there was a little bit of hubbub about that, and I think it, that, that finally went away six or eight missions later. But people don't realize that not all words 
in English translate well into Russian, and the same thing is true with Russian words to English. And uh, Uran is the, the name of the planet Uranus. And so I, I saw that as probably a public relations minefield that we didn't want to go in. <laughs> Well, um, let's talk about the—you're the first expedition, so I keep relating to the space station as I know it today. We're in a period of utilization. The, the mission is research, um, but I'm sure in the early years, your mission was getting the station ready for research and, and getting it— there was assembly um, efforts, uh, especially in the beginning years, and, of course, you had to activate— the space station and get it ready for future crews. Can you talk about some of your mission objectives in your multi-month stay? Yeah, it was exactly that. We had uh, initial work to get the uh, oxygen generation system up. The bigger issue was uh, the carbon dioxide removal system that that had some hiccups getting started. Uh, we had a number of systems that did not power up correctly. Some of them had uh, components that uh, were inoperable, or one in particular had a, a multi-pin connector and some of the pins were bent. But the work that we had for Expedition 1 was troubleshooting all that and uh, inserting tab A into slot B, if you will. And we were all very hands-on guys, and that's what we thought we were going to be doing up on orbit. We were very happy to be in orbit doing all that because that's what we trained for. So. That was a really rewarding part of uh, the first, certainly the first half of our expedition. And I got to say one thing about that: uh, we had, we were told, and at least three times that I can remember, where we had commented that a particular piece of hardware was not functional, or something was broken, or it wasn't working the way it was supposed to. And we would say, "Okay, fine. What what's the grounds plan to fix this?" And the Capcom would say, okay, uh, Space Station, we'll get back to you on that. And about a day later, we'd get the read from the ground, and they would say, well, we've, we've, got, the, we've got the plan to fix whatever that thing is that's broken. And, and we said, okay, great, what is it? And they said, well, we're sending up spares. And I said, we said, great, okay, when are they going to get here? And the answer was six months after you guys leave. And we said, <laughs> whoa. So uh, in all those cases that I can remember, uh, after a couple days, we would have a discussion with Moscow or Houston, and the discussion would be, hey, uh, we see that console or that component, uh, it's up and running now. Can you, can you give us uh, any words on what's going on? And so we would say, look, uh, we spent the last three days uh, tearing that thing apart at night and trying to figure out why it wouldn't work and fixing it. And the ground would say, well, <clears throat> where did you get the procedure to do that? Or where did you get the spare parts? Or where did you get the tools? Or, you know, who told you you could do that? And we said, hey, well, we figured we couldn't make it any worse, so <laughs> we tried to fix it, and we did. And we could break it again if you guys want to break it. And then the ground would say, no, no, just, just keep it running. Just let it run. <laughs> and the, the thing about that was, was we were constantly going back and forth with the ground on essentially what the capability of the crew was. And it, it kind of got down to try not to be too restrictive. You know, let us do some thinking about what we can and can't do. Try not to get ahead of us on this. And um, 
I really think that's probably not something they do a lot of today on station because it's so mature. But when we go back to the moon, I guarantee you astronauts are going to be doing an awful lot of that. And the question is, you know, how do we learn where and how to be able to do that without making things worse? And uh, that's one of the big questions for the future. We've, we've got to have people who have that mindset. Yeah, that, that mindset of autonomy. I know, I know it's definitely talked about uh, not only for the moon, which I'm sure it will be implemented, but for Mars uh, whenever, just like you had experienced on Expedition 1 where you had several hours of communication gaps, uh, there's going to be significant communication delays for a Mars mission. And so that level of autonomy and the crew being able to solve problems real time uh, without the help of the of the ground is absolutely uh, something to consider. Yeah, I think uh, if there's one comment that I would have, I, I have not seen enough of that thinking, if you will, on how NASA's planning to go back to the moon. I think maybe we don't need it for the moon uh, for the outset to do lunar exploration, but we certainly need to be good at it when we start talking about going to Mars. And practicing that on a moon mission is the way to go. Zooming back to Expedition 1 for just a second, you talked about some of your mission objectives, but I'm, I'm curious about life. Um, you know, the, as I mentioned before, the station, as I know it today, very big, lots of space, lots of, uh, lots of food, lots of things to do, exercise equipment, um, and, and they've been doing it for 20 years, so it's, it's, uh, it's very much routine, but what was life like for the first long-duration crew aboard this uh, spacecraft? Well, it uh, it had a routine to it, which we liked. Um, initially, we were really constrained because we could only get in the service module, but gradually as we were able to add more power and open the node up and we got the lab brought on board, it got to be really expansive. And life got pretty good because, you know, we had a routine. We marched through the day, and, and things were really good. Um, I've got to say that... Uh, one of the things that, a couple things really surprised me, though. One was I was in the middle of the service module. We got the node opened up. We were running around doing some things in the middle of the day, late morning. And I'm gliding over the viewport in the service module, which is facing Nader, looking down at the Earth. And we're going over the mouth of the Mediterranean, Straits of Gibraltar. And this was the third time maybe that morning that we had been in that neck of the earth since we woke up. And I looked over to Yuri, who was over by the galley where all the food is, and I said, Yuri, do we have any more coffee over there? And he was rifling through the coffee packs to see what was there. And then I thought about it, and I said, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the most fantastic view probably anybody ever has at this moment on the planet. And all I can think about is, you know, is there another cup of coffee in the galley? And it struck me that how normal being in this really abnormal situation had become. And I go, wow, this is really surprising. And I saw that uh, a lot on our flight, and I've seen many crews after us in their on-orbit discussions and their debriefs say exactly the same thing. It's incredible how adaptive humans are and how quickly these completely bizarre uh, circumstances become routine. 
No, I, I hear that all the time, just how how this life on board becomes routine. Um, and, and just, you know, this view, you see it because you're circling the earth 16 times a day. So it, so it does become a very regular thing. Still, you know, amazing to think about from from here on the ground, especially for those of us who have not had that view. Um, but just, just an appreciation for, for the ability to adapt, as you're saying, you know, the space should now, as I said, you, you just, not only do you get used to it, but you, you have, um, you have so many amenities, I guess, uh, on the station. Now you have, you have your own place to sleep. Uh, you have, you have a sort of a dinner table where, where everybody can get together and, and eat off of the same dinner table. What was what were some of those uh, elements of life on station with only three modules? You know, where where were you sleeping? Where were you where were you eating together? It didn't seem like you had a lot of uh, room to spare. Well, Sergey and I were in the service module sleep quarters, uh, little rooms in the back end of the uh, service module. Yuri had Yuri's. He chose to bunk out first in the uh, Soyuz. He slept in his Soyuz couch which was kind of his command chair. Uh, you're really in zero gravity. As long as you're not banging into stuff, it really doesn't matter uh, where you sleep because your body position is, is kind of this slightly contracted, relaxed position. And both uh, Sergey and I had these little sleeping bags. You kind of zip yourself up in it so you're not banging around, but quite comfortable. Yuri had uh, a seat belt. He put that on the way we went. Um, we did not have a kitchen table, and this was a big issue with the ground because we thought we were told we had trained and we had thought we'd come up and we'd find the kitchen table in a bag or a box or something. We talked to the ground after we about a couple of days after we got on orbit. We said, uh, "Hey, uh, Soup, uh, the Russian center." We said, uh, "Where's our kitchen table?" I said, "Oh, well, we we left that off the flight because we had." Uh, stowage and weight problems and we'll send it up to you and we said okay fine when's it going to show up and again it was oh yeah six months after you guys get there <laughs> so uh for about three weeks we had a stealth project and we took parts off of if they if you will shipping containers that came up in the progress cargo ship there were these aluminum racks and bars and we built our own kitchen table out of scrap. And again, the ground went nuts, but it turned out to be a very workable arrangement. Uh, the second expedition used it and liked it a lot. And I thought, actually from a design standpoint, because it was a little bit smaller than the big kitchen table that was originally designed, that it was a little more workable. It wasn't in the way as much, but that got uh, demanifested when uh, the big table came up, and I, I think that that piece of hardware is in the museum somewhere. So. <laughs> but again, it's, it's, a, it's a question of letting the crews kind of adapt to their own space. To, to build on that a little bit more, every crew I've seen on station, they get to the point where they see themselves in an environment that's really not part of the earth anymore, at least for you know, a couple months. And that's a really important kind of mental construct as to how astronauts see themselves in relation to Earth. Hmm. Now, you mentioned you, when you were talking to the ground, you said, oh, that's not going to come for another six months. Was that the arrival of the 102 crew, the, the space shuttle that arrived? And what else did they bring? 
Well, actually, the table came after the 102 crew, so uh, I think the six months might the the table showing up might have been the, at the end of their expedition. But uh. 102 brought up uh, the MPLM, the uh, the Italian logistics module that uh, the Italian Space Agency was providing, and. Uh, that was also uh, Susan Helms, Jim Voss, and the commander, Yuri Usachev, and we spent a week with them on orbit, uh, people outside hooking stuff up, and then uh, Jim and Susan, I guess, did a spacewalk or two, I guess. And then uh, when we do these docked uh, events with the shuttle, because of the reduced pressure that the shuttle has to be at for the EVAs, we generally have the hatches closed, so it's shuttle docks, you have some initial meet and greet, then it's a couple days of uh, hatches closed, and we open the hatches up when the EVAs are done. So a very hectic time, a lot of running around, moving bags and cargo, getting the MPLM attached to the station. But um, it was great to see uh, all these people that we had worked and trained with for years, and now they're up on orbit, and we're going to get on Discovery, close the hatch, and go home. Now, one thing before you went home that I believe it was it was you who instituted this was it's a tradition that's still carried on today, um, handing over the command of the International Space Station. You as the first commander, that change of command ceremony with a bell and uh, handing over of, I think it was a key, um, that was started by you and that was inspired by your time in the Navy. Is that right? Uh, yes, I, and um, it was something that we had talked about both with the Russian cosmonauts and the other astronauts in, in Houston that we wanted to do um, simply because we had two control centers at that point. We have four now at least. I think we might have five. I'm not sure. But the who was in charge of the space station in later years, in, in, in the modern era, uh, definitely gets passed around from country to country and even you know, nationality to nationality as far as a station commander. So anticipating that, we thought, you know, um, the Navy has a long tradition of doing this, uh, and it's the Royal Navy in the U.K., the Russian Navy does it, the U.S. Navy does it. Then you have this little ceremony where you say, okay, fine, here's the crew, and we're going to tell you something, and here's the new guy who's in charge. And... Uh, this is what he's going to do, and so it's a change of command. And we thought that was a really important uh, cultural thing to introduce to the space station. Uh, I think at first the Russians were going, they're scratching their heads saying, you know, what, what are these Americans doing now? But I think today uh, they and the Canadians and the Japanese and the Europeans really like it because it really sets the tone for the next phase of station operations and how it's going to be run. Now, when you came home, uh, you came home on the space shuttle, and this was a little bit different for you in that the time you spent in space was much longer than you had previously on your other shuttle missions. How were you feeling when you came back um, now that you had spent so much time in your space, your your body adjusting to 1G after a long expedition? I I had a really good experience. I don't really know why. I, hmm. I know we spent a lot of time uh, on our days on orbit 
uh, getting what exercise we could. Um, we had a little jungle gym that we worked on that was new that really seemed to be beneficial. My experience coming back after the ISS flight was probably as good as my shorter shuttle flights. And um, I, I felt really good. I, I did not have um, any particular uh, uneasiness, you know, neurovestibular issues or anything like that. As, as a little experiment, the day after we got back, the morning uh, after the day we had landed, uh, we were going to pile into a van out in the parking lot at, at the Kennedy Space Center, and we were going to go somewhere for some kind of test. And when you're walking around to, to do these things, you have a flight surgeon right with you and maybe one or two other handlers just in case you start going wobbly. You know, they'll, they'll catch you. And I, I felt pretty good. And so we're out in the parking lot. I talked to my flight doc, and I said, uh, Terry, uh, and he was going to drive the van. I said, Terry, uh, let, me, uh, let me try driving the van. <laughs> Terry, he's holding his hand on his head. It's Sunday morning, and it's like 6 o'clock in the lobby, you know, in the lot outside the ONC building at KSC. There's nobody in the parking lot. There's no cars in the parking lot. And he says, okay, but just take it really easy. So I got, in the, I got in the car, and I'm driving around really slowly, and I could turn really slowly. Didn't like braking abruptly, but, you know, as long as I was easy on the controls, it was okay. And then I, I did that for about three or four minutes. I stopped, got out, and I, I thought to myself, this is the kind of thing that we're going we're to be doing when we go to Mars and we have a long journey. We're going to be weightless. We have a landing. We're all going to pile out, and we're going to be in rovers and things like that. And I thought about that, and I said to myself, we can do this. That's big. That's that's very big. That I mean that can uh, you know as we're shaping what that's going to look like that that little experiment you did in the parking lot might actually prove useful as to uh, as to how humans can perform on another surface. You know we've learned well, so. Imagine not well documented, but I think that's the kind of stuff we ought to be looking. <laughs> that's right. You know it, we learned so much just from the International Space Station just past yours. I know I know you retired from NASA in 2001, but taking a look at the whole space station program after your mission uh, going from starting in 2000 now here we are 2020 um, you know what what do you take away from the experience of what you've seen maybe from the outside of what we have or what value the International Space Station throughout these past 20 years has brought us well, I think people uh, maybe have not experienced or don't remember uh, what a technical and programmatic and possibly dis diplomatic challenge the space station really was. And the fact that we're able to do it, I don't think the space station's had a major technical casualty that I'm aware of since we launched. We've had, what, 63 expeditions on there that have all been very successful. Um, we have multiple ways to get to the station now. Um, so you've got to step back and say, well, what does this really mean in terms of uh, the future? What, you know, what, what does this say about what's next? And I say, well, if we're going to go past the moon, out to Mars and maybe other places, asteroids and things like that, 
the character of how we will do this is going to have several aspects. One is the vehicles that we send, and there are probably going to be more than one of them, are going to be very big. They're going to be of such a size that they can't be uh, assembled on the ground and launched in a single lift. We don't have the boosters that are going to have enough power. So they're going to have to be assembled in, in orbit with EVA and robotics. And they're going to have to uh, combine the resources of more than just one country because the, the expense of a Mars mission is not something any single country is going to be able to afford, nor would they have all the technology and capability that will be required. And so if you look at International Space Station, it's really a blueprint for how to do this. So I think all those questions, they're behind us. That's just an incredible thing to think about. You know, Space Station, not only for informing uh, exploration plans, we're talking about the moon, we're talking about Mars, and having a foundation of international cooperation is, is really thanks to the space station program i know one one thing we're looking forward to in the near future you talk about multiple ways to get to the space station now that's an era of commercialization with commercial crew and i know there's efforts to commercialize low earth orbit and uh, thinking about what else is going to be in low earth orbit in the future and it'll be thanks to the space station that's informing some of those commercial enterprises uh do you think there's there's value there to the space station as a platform to help build an economy in low Earth orbit? Well, I think it's a big question that hinges on uh, what what do commercial operations really, or commercial enterprises, what, what do they look like? I think it's hard to have a commercial market when NASA's the only customer. It kind of stretches the question of, is it really a commercial event? Um, if we were able to find some material, uh, invent or develop something that could only be done in space that was, had tremendous value, either in the space-based economy or back here on Earth, then I think you'd see commercial space really take off. Everybody's very optimistic that we are going to find something like that. I know that if we if we don't look for it, then we're not going to find it. That's right. Now, th now thinking about that, you know, um, you got to make sure that NASA's not just the only customer; that we're one of many customers, and we're also looking at exploration. We got this Artemis program, and that's going to inform our exploration plans for Mars. How do you see NASA's role uh, for the future? Well, I think it's an open question right now. I would like to see NASA uh, take a strong role in leading the technology development and organizing the architecture for how we're going to do lunar exploration and certainly Mars expeditions. I think that's the right place for NASA. Um, the one negative comment that I would have is that we're NASA is a political animal, if you will, and we tend to have a great periods of very robust uh, development and operations and then a stand down for a decade or two before we do the next big thing. Uh, we did that in the moon program. We did that in shuttle. We're probably going to do that when space stations pass past its peak and getting ready for some sort of disposition. I don't think it's a very healthy way to 
have a robust space-capable organization, if we could change that for the better, I think it would be a tremendous thing. I absolutely believe that, too. Bill Shepard, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast and sharing uh, the history of what it took to get to Expedition 1, your experience there, and then what you helped shape uh, for 20 continuous years on board the International Space Station. I very much appreciate your time. Well, happy to be uh, with you and your audience. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Shep as much as I did. We've been putting together a collection of episodes about the International Space Station in celebration of the 20th anniversary of continuous human presence. Go check us out at nasa.gov slash podcast. You can click on us. Houston, we have a podcast. And off to the side, we have a collection of Space Station episodes. You can listen to them in no particular order. This has been a very uh, dynamic time for the International Space Station this month, and we got a lot more coming up. Check out nasa.gov for the latest launch and landing schedule of crews going up and down to and from the International Space Station. You can talk to us at Houston We Have a Podcast at the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on August 14th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, and Jennifer Hernandez. Thanks again to Bill Shepard for taking the time to come on the show. We'll be back next week.